Hello everyone, Jay Stansel here from the Product Coalition. We've got another product people interview today. It's with Tammy Reese from New York. From a personal perspective, reading Tammy's LinkedIn and experience, she's a product management heavyweight. Um, I think it's about 10 years of product management experience and not many people can, can say that. Uh, I'm really looking forward to personally learning from, from Tammy this morning, from her experiences, stories, tips and tricks around product management. Uh, it's, I'm going to try and keep this nice and punchy for you, um, but I'm sure I could quite easily talk for a long while with Tammy. So let's go across now to, to join Tammy uh, in New York. Good morning, Tammy. Thanks for joining me in Melbourne. And um, Good evening. <laughs> good evening, morning. Uh, Tammy, Thanks for your time. Um, let's get started with, could you tell us a little bit about your background? And no one seems to ever just arrive straight out of uni or school into product management. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and, and what the pathway was like for you? Sure. Uh, I started in university as a physiology major. So my background is in how the human body and the systems work, uh, which when I go to interviews, I say things like, well, the integrated systems of the human body are incredibly similar to an SOA diagram of wow. APIs in technical systems nowadays. And it, it's true. It's part of the reason why I understand those things. But uh, when I left, I went to business school uh, with intentions of owning my own physical therapy practice. And that was not what I ended up wanting to do by the time I left business school. And Slowly, I made my way into product management. The job I had before uh, official product management was uh, I was a pricing analyst, but I was called a product manager at Farmers Insurance, which is part of the Zurich group of insurances. And I was doing pricing analytics on how to price auto insurance and certain discounts and writing really large documents that were sent to departments of insurance in states as exciting as North and South Dakota. And wow. <laughs> And at some point, they, the management turned to me and they said, you're good at the math, or as the British say, the maths. You're good at the maths, but you're not as good at the maths as uh, our actuarial team is. We'd like to introduce you to our product development team. Uh, would you be interested because you're more creative and you're thinking outside the box? And I said, what was that? What's product development? And they told me about how it was, how they developed the new products and how they chose based on market research, et cetera, what the new thing that they were going to roll out would be. And I said, that's really cool. I had never heard of the concept. I thought it was really awesome because I've always been a problem solver. And so it, I took up the opportunity and I haven't looked back. Wow, brilliant. Um, so that, that was... Um since then, your, your, the products or businesses you've consulted to over the years, is, is, there's a huge uh, variety. Um, the count is something like 27, I think. Wow, okay. <laughs> so that, that, that's a wealth of experience. Um, can, can, just, just bring it back to some of the basics around what good product management is in, to, in well, almost 2017 now. Um, what is that to you? So when I teach at General Assembly, the things that I focus in on my students are that the two biggest parts of product management are prioritization and communication. And so prioritization is how good are you at knowing what to do next? Uh, so I often summarize a product manager as the person who decides what to do next. And then the communication is bi-directional. 
all the inputs from market research, from the sales team, from the customer service team, from your engineers as to what's possible and what's needed from your customers. And then the other side of the communication, which is outgoing, talking to the engineers, talking to the customer service team, talking to the sales team and making sure they all know why it is you've chosen what to do next so that they can come along with you on that journey and that they know exactly what it is you're looking for. So that could be verbal communication, written communication, drawings, et cetera. Okay. And how have you found, um, with those two key points, prioritization and communication, how do you find they differ for, for someone who's in a startup or working for a founder or is a founder to mm-hmm. enterprise? What, what are the different challenges? And let's maybe go down the startup, the small end of the scale first, for a, a startup or a, you know, a lead employee who's maybe one of three um, when it comes yeah. to prioritization and communication. Sure. So I will start with the enterprise first. So in an enterprise, there are so many different people working on things that you have a lot more people that can help you with the research, right? And at the same point, you have a lot more stakeholders you need to uh, convince to come along with the journey. And so the communication gets a lot more robust and takes a lot more time. Customer development is still equally important, but you have a lot more salespeople and a lot more data that you could be researching as to what the positive indicators are not are. The enterprise is also less keen on trying things in the experimental sense. They're getting better at that, um, but trying things with the understanding that you might be wrong. Uh, which is the case in most people's product management careers, that it, the vast majority of the time you're going to be wrong. Yeah. Whereas the enterprise likes to think that if they do enough research, they won't be wrong, um, which unfortunately does not work out to their to their benefit. Whereas in a startup, when you're part of this core group of just a few people, the world is endless, right? You don't have a concept of brand yet. You don't have a concept of necessarily what you might screw up. You just have all this possibility of what could happen. And that, that expansive nature can be both exciting and daunting because choosing a direction and prioritizing is so much harder. Very often as a product manager within the enterprise, you're told, hey, you're going to launch this product. Not even you're going to solve this problem. Very often it's you're going to launch this product and your job is to figure out how to execute on it. If you're lucky to be part of an organization that says, hey, we have this problem, come up with some ideas on how to solve this problem, that's amazing, but most product managers in the enterprise don't get the opportunity to do that. Whereas at a startup, you can really start focusing on the problem, figuring out who your target users are, figuring out how to be strategic about how to address their needs, and then prioritize the experiments you're going to run about what your problem solution matchup is and whether or not later you have product market fit. Okay, this is really interesting. So we had on uh, last week when I was talking to uh, Terry, uh, a service designer, um, a, a similar conversation around design thinking in the enterprise and how it creates an opportunity through experimentation and through having real conversations with real people, um, good products, but also products or experiments that fail. And yeah. from still today, many in the enterprise, uh, senior level, this is a new concept. They don't have the certainty of in 12 weeks, I'm going to get that and then we launch it and then we spend the market money and it, it has to work and maybe we'll pump more money into it until it works. Mm-hmm. What, what, what are some of the, and that is a real problem that still exists today. How, how do you go about constructing that conversation with an executive who has never experimented before? And there's some overlap here between 
lean and product management and some ways of working and service design. Um, how would you construct that conversation if you were sat down opposite someone today who is looking at an experiment for the first time instead of just an engineering team building and launching? So there are two sides of it. One is that lean and the experiments are very geared towards minimizing risk. So very often I'll ask them, have every, has every product you've ever launched been incredibly successful or as successful as you anticipated? And no one ever says yes to that, right? And so when you talk to them and you draw that like risk curve of if you just go towards launch, this is what your risk looks like. But if you can, minim if you can do the cycles of experimentation and minimize risk along the way, that's where you get the biggest benefit. Because I think everyone knows that at some point they launched something and they invested millions of dollars in the wrong thing. Right. So how can you invest one hundred thousand dollars because it's the enterprise and they're actually going to invest that much in the research. One hundred thousand dollars in something that prevents you from investing three or five million dollars. So that's the first part of it is them understanding, like, don't you want to put your name on something that isn't going to fail? that has a better chance of not failing, that when you go for those big dollars, you have a sense of security that it's got more probability of success. So that's part of it. Uh, and the other part of it is something I learned about when I was at Lean Startup Week this past year, which is the nature of how do you account for lean experimentation? And that the investment in these experiments needs to be thought of as the same way options are thought of, that it's you're investing in options. Not all of them are going to pay out. But your hope is that you have a diversified portfolio enough in these options that one of them will pay off. But if you take all of the money and you put it towards one project, the chance of success is a lot less than putting a small amount in 10 or 12 or 30 projects of experiments that help you guide where to put that big amount of money. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you. We've given Enterprise a, a good chunk there. Let, let's come back to startup world and your startup, Just Not Sorry. Could you firstly introduce the product and tell us a little bit about um, uh, practicing what you preach, essentially, um, of firstly discovering and identifying a problem, validating it, experimenting it, and then t taking it in, into market? Sure. So Just Not Sorry is a Gmail plugin or a Chrome extension, technically, that underlines, similar to spell check, words such as just, sorry, I think, I believe, I'm no expert, that when you're sending an email, it undermines your message. It makes you come off as less confident. So we bring awareness to these words so that you can choose whether or not you want to use them. So I just heard your mother died. I'm so sorry. Totally acceptable. Yeah. I'm just checking in. Sorry to bother you about that report that was supposed to be on my desk yesterday not the, the tone you really want to be using. So uh, it really is about bringing awareness. And what is interesting to me about this product and the success that it's had is that I didn't realize we had built it in a lean way until afterwards. Right, okay. And it was like, we had the success and I looked back as to every step we did along the way and I said, oh my God, it's, it's just so ingrained in the way that I work right now that this is a perfect case study. So that comes from when I first came up with the idea, talking to a group of women and saying, hey, what do you think of this idea? And everyone's saying, yes, yes, yes. But Steve Cohen having taught me that that is not validation. There's a lot of false positives out there in the world. And until someone's willing to give you time, money, or social capital, it's not real validation. And so there was a woman in that audience who worked for a PR firm called Small Girls PR. And she said, not only do I love this idea, I'll give you free PR. And that was real validation. Wow. And so, and then as we even started alpha beta testing with people, they said, when can I give this to somebody else? 
Uh, the only thing that's problematic with Just Not Sorry is that we have very minimal analytics on it. Right. Because in order to get really good analytics, we would have needed to be reading people's emails and yeah. really tracking what people were writing. And that was a security concern that was way too high risk for the nature of this project. And so we just know the number of people that have downloaded yeah. and yeah. that's what we know. And that's a great number. And unfortunately we don't have, don't have any more information. Um, what I am doing right now that's more data driven is I'm talking to chief diversity officers at big enterprises to see if we can get it onto Outlook because you can't just put it onto someone's computer when it comes to Outlook. Yep. The CIOs of the world need to bless it and things of that sort. So we're talking to them about understanding what's really involved and what do we need to build into the product in order to make it available on Outlook because that's where work email still lives for millions and millions of people. Wow, wow, brilliant. I suppose that's, that in itself shows um, from a line of thinking, you didn't, you didn't build this product to get it in, you know, to make it the yammer of um, writing good emails. Um, you know, th this is a sincere product with a sincere problem, and the scale, yeah. the scale is a byproduct of solving a really good problem. Um, and I think that it actually comes back to the nature of simple design and simple solutions, right? We, there are tons of people who say, wouldn't it have been great if you could choose what words you type in and what gets highlighted and, and much more flexibility? Absolutely. But that, to a certain degree, is feature creep. You know, it's scope creep on, on this MVP of a product. And what's amazing is that our product's been successful even without that. Because as much as there are people who want that, there's tons of people who are like, hey, if I could just be more aware of the most basic, most common things, how awesome is that? And even the nature of the code, we open sourced it. So within a week or so, uh, the list of original six phrases got expanded to try and trying. That, that also was something we highlighted. And then there was another few people who contributed some more. So our list now I think has like 14 or 15 phrases that are, are highlighted and that came from the community, right? Because the open source community said, I also want this. And there's, there's nothing more direct customer development than a person who's willing to write the code yep. so that it could actually work. Yeah, that's that's testament of success, definitely. Definitely, we, we've um, that that community management. Um, <laughs> how do you find if I, if I think back to product management ten years ago, we we didn't have or even longer the ability to interact with customers or potential customers or former customers in the same way we do now, and. I, I do know as well, not so much in a start world, but the bigger the company that gets, the harder it is for a product manager, depending on their passion to want to talk to real people, to, mm -hmm. to make that communication leap. Is it something that you still see as, a, as, as valuable at a startup level when you're trying to validate a product and a, and a market fit oh, as it is in the enterprise? Right. I think it's valuable at both levels. Um, definitely for the enterprise because if you're about to launch something to tens of thousands of users very often, make sure you've talked to some of them to make sure it isn't going to piss them off. Um, you know, that it's going to get them excited because you've got a lot more at stake um, in the sense that like your company won't go down, but your team might get really poorly judged. In the startup sense, if you aren't launching something that has customer input on it, 
there's a good chance you won't have runway, right? Like people very often say that by the end of your seed round, you should have a better understanding of the problem and, and the kinds of solutions you want to uh, um, be designing. By the end of your series A, you should have problem solution fit. By the, by the time you're raising a series B, you should have product market fit. Right. So if those are all around the customers, those are all around is what we're building resonating with our users is what we're building resonating with the people who are going to pay for this. Are they willing to pay for it? And I mean, that's in the case of a venture backed startup. But the same thing happens if you're hoping to actually charge people and be a, a, a solvent startup that's profitable and 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 successful in its own right. So I think that um, with a startup, it becomes even more crucial and really important to not only understand the problem, but what the current solution landscape is. So who are your competitors? Is, is your competitor, it might not necessarily be technology, it might be your competitor is a pen and a post-it, right? So like, what, what, what are people doing right now to solve this problem? And are they willing to change their behaviors to use your item? Brilliant, okay. So when you're collecting all of, you're learning all of the time from customers, can we talk just a little bit about your, your, your daily life? What, what, what tools are you using to collect, distill, make sense of all of this information? Where, where are you typing it in or is it post-its? Or how, how do you find, what, what, what works for you to bring information together and then, and then make sense of it? So uh, it depends on the nature of the product and who the users are. Okay. So um, in enterprise products, which I've worked a lot with, very often I'll set up a regular meeting with the customer service team and the sales team and the marketing team. But marketing is less often. But the sales team, finding out from them what who they're going up against to understand your competitive landscape, what it is the features are that customers are saying, I can't buy your product unless it has this feature, right? And understanding those trends, because that's the future-leaning product. Uh, and then you have the customer service team that you should be reading with at least once, if not twice a week, where they're dealing with the current problems, right? Like they're getting the, they are the first line of defense for your current customers who are paying for your product and they are, they're mad as hell, right? So having them know that they can come to you as a way of helping fix these problems for the customers. Um, and then I do a lot of post-its, but very often what I end up doing is having a Trello board, or I was recently using Clubhouse as our project management software, which is a combination of a Trello and a sauna and tracker and a few other things. But um, where really all ideas go in there, and then I would write those on post-its in a meeting where we were collaborating with those teams and saying, okay, like how are we supposed to be prioritizing this, right? Because it's the understanding is just simply because an idea comes in, not everything gets solved immediately. Some things have to boil up. Sometimes a trend has to develop. And also it's really important that the rest of your coworkers understand that simply because you're saying no to them doesn't mean you aren't saying yes to something else. And that they're part of that communication and that, that experience of understanding why something got to the top of the list and why something isn't. Um, very often I'll use what are known as information radiators. So once the post-its have been chosen, I'll stick them up in a place where the entire team can see it and they can see them move. Um, because not everyone signs into a Trello or a tracker or a Asana no. or whatever it is you're tracking. Like that isn't their job. That's no. your job. That's a communication tool for you and the tech team, for the design team. But the rest of the company wants to be able to see epic level what's going on. And so making sure that that's available is really important. Brilliant. Thank you. 
Tammy, thank you so much for, for sharing knowledge. Um, as I said at the start, I, I knew I could talk to you for, for a, long, a long while, um, but I, I will let you get on with your Friday evening. Uh, oh, you don't York. want to talk about lean versus agile versus lean and agile? Um, if, can, can, you, can you fit it in? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Let's, let's do it then. Yeah, please. Thank you. So that, that post uh, up on my LinkedIn, um, I wrote while I was at Pivotal Labs. Uh, one of the first few months I was there and it ended up on the Pivotal Labs homepage and I got lots and lots of hits and it turns out that there's a lot of confusion as to what is lean and what is agile and when are you working lean versus agile and can you do one without the other and can you what does lean and agile look like together and so uh, I recommend reading it it's, it's a short post but the concept of lean is how do you minimize risk through experimentation and continuous improvement and you can do that even in a waterfall method right? Like, how can you have experiments to begin with? And then you can write a 150 page spec and then launch your product. It's not the best way to do lean, but it's an option. Uh, agile is about breaking down things into smaller bits and making sure that along the way, hopefully it's a functional product that it, it's, it's, it's a methodology for building. And together they are a methodology for building small, and using each of those small builds as an experiment with your customers to understand whether or not you're heading in the right direction and changing direction when you learn when you learn that you're heading in the wrong direction. And so that's what Lean and Agile is together. It's the continuous building of small things and learning along the way through experiments, through feedback loops, to know am I heading in the right direction and not being married to my 150 page spec anymore at any point saying, hey, it's time for us to make a left turn. Okay, so they're brilliant. The ability to make choices much earlier, change, change the future. Um, but to make those choices based on customer development is where Lean and Agile come together. Because Agile always allows you to make that choice. Yeah. The question is, is what inputs are you using to make sure you're making the right choice? And that's where Lean comes in with the customer development nature of it and feedback loops, et cetera. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I think, I think that was my first encore that I've, I've got out from an interview. <laughs> I'm going to write that down as an encore. I should start adding encores to, to more interviews, I think, actually. They can become little snippets, like 30 seconds of product management. A bonus, a bonus section, yeah. Um, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. It's been a real, real pleasure. Thank you so much. For those watching, I'll um, add Tammy's details um, to the bottom uh, underneath on YouTube and um, to the Medium article and letter that we'll get out. But for now, have a fantastic Friday evening, Tammy. And um, Enjoy your Friday. Time. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Okay. Uh, I told you it was going to be punchy, and I, I, I really think it was. Um, Thanks to Tammy for giving up some of her Friday evening there in, in New York. Um, it's some real interesting points that we went through and I always enjoy talking about some of the, the details, the day-to-day -day part um, of uh, how product managers work, as well as switching between enterprise and startup because I know so many of our followers um, who are product managers, designers, or engineers exist at different points along that spectrum. So I'll continue to to try and get those questions uh, out to who we interview, um, and always represent either end of that spectrum and, and in between where possible. But that's all from now. I'm going to go and enjoy my Saturday morning, and um, I look forward to sharing another interview with you again soon. Thanks. Bye bye.